0: Welcome to the Aussie Runner Podcast, a chance to take some time out with
1: people who love running as much as you.
0: Hi, I'm Damon Roberts
2: and I'm Jeremy Francis and a warm welcome to everyone listening in as we're back covering the great Run Against Violence virtual challenge for 2021.
0: We certainly are, Jez, and this event is raising awareness for family violence issues in local communities right across Australia, where teams of walkers and runners cover 1300 kilometres, which is actually the distance from Broken Hill to Sydney and over 1.6 million steps. And
2: as we get closer to the end of the podcast series and the end of the uh, running run virtual event, um, we spoke to Trevor's Island in the last episode from Run Down Under, and he gave us a bit of insight into the support that goes behind the scenes to organise such a big event like this. And we heard some really interesting stories about how his own rundown understarted and how it all began
0: yeah fascinating to to speak to travis and hear his story and today jez in a different format kiralee speaks to melissa stubbings in part one of a two part interview with melissa where we explore another angle to domestic and family violence the impact it has on indigenous communities
2: let's get this show on the road damon
3: Being with me here today, Melissa, look, one of the things that I have wanted to explore for quite some time, but I really haven't slowed down enough to really actually focus and think about what's going on, but we hear a lot of statistics and I guess stories and news headlines around family violence within Indigenous communities. And in particular, I guess when I hear that, those stories, I think always of the women. That are growing up and living in these environments. And so I wanted to take the opportunity this year and as part of our inaugural, inaugural <laughs> I can't pronounce very easily, podcast series, is to actually give some, you know, shine, shine some light on this and actually get some understanding. I realised just the more I thought about it in the lead up to our conversation, the more I realised how naive I am and how poorly informed. I am about the Aboriginal woman's perspective on family violence. So thank you, Melissa, for opening up your life, your heart, your mind and your, all your incredible experience to help me learn about this. Now, I'm just going to hand over to you um, if you want to just share a bit about who you are and, and, and give a, a bit of perspective on, on this conversation and where you're coming from, your worldview.
4: Sure. Thanks, Lee. Uh, So as you said, my name is Melissa Stubbings and I'm a Burra and Wamali woman of the Darug Nation. And I'm very lucky to live and work on the uh, land of my ancestors that have lived and cared for this land for over 40,000 years. Uh, Not a lot of Aboriginal people are privileged enough to live on their land of their ancestors. Um, I am. And I recognize that as a privilege that a lot of uh, other Aboriginal people don't have. At the same time, I'm very proud that I get to do that. And I'm, I'm lucky that I have a lot of family around me. And we, you know, we all live here on country. My experience in community has been, I've been a community worker for a bit over 20 odd years now in a few different roles. I started at, you know, in education. So I started as an Aboriginal teacher's aide back in a long time ago. I'm not going to date myself, but uh, working in schools and helping kids in schools, and then I worked moved on to community legal centre, and it was there that I got a, a grounding, I suppose, in working in um, the domestic violence area as a worker. So I worked on the women's domestic violence court advocacy service at both Penrith and Hawkesbury for most of those eleven years that I was at the legal centre, and was able to learn and then. From my experiences and my knowledge, my personal knowledge was able to then do some education. So I've done education with police and mediators and other community workers around working with Aboriginal women, particularly in and around domestic violence. I was lucky enough there to to train as a mediator myself. So I'm also still continue today. I'm a nationally accredited mediator, um, a family dispute resolution practitioner I do some training on the side, some facilitation with Department of Communities and Justice, and I manage an Aboriginal organisation here in Richmond called Marana, uh, part-time, which is one of my passions. I was one of the founding members of Marana, and as I tell people, it's my fifth child, although... Mirana was birthed between my third and fourth child. So I don't know though that my fourth child would actually like me saying that, that Mirana is really my fourth child. But, but um, yeah, so uh, Marana is a, a great passion of mine and um, I've been lucky enough to manage Mirana now for just on four years and I don't know where that journey will take me. I do believe that we, you know, shouldn't stay somewhere for too long. I think our skills need to be shared somewhere else. And also our journey, sometimes we just need new challenges. I worked for government for a little while. I was six years at the Department of Justice as a, in the immediate community justice Centre as it's a mediation program. And I realized very quickly that government work isn't for me. I'm much better in community work, grassroots work. That is me. And I own that. I work with government agencies, as I said, Department of Communities and Justice. Now I work with them and Legal Aid. But as a contractor, it's much more where I sit and where how I feel better able to work with them. And and that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and one mainly is because I think as an employee of a government department, your voice is sometimes muted. And when people get to know me, you'll know very quickly that I'm not one who will be muted very easily. So. Community workers for me. I mentioned to you before my children. So I have four great children, um, one son and three daughters. And I have a granddaughter who's three and a half, and a grandson on the way in December. So I'm very excited by all of that. I'm a single mum, been a single mum for a long time, and just working, raising my kids and uh, living life large, like trying to be as much as I can. Because as I was talking to you, Kira Lee, before, I believe that the ancestors, you know, give us who we are, our purpose in life. And it's for us to go out there and find that purpose and to live that truth and authenticity. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, always with my culture in my background or not, well, not background, but always with my culture there, always with who I am as a person and trying to be genuine. My interest, of course, as I, you know, domestic violence, as I was saying to you, I've a child of domestic violence. So what I mean by that is that, you know, I was raised in a violent home. And that's an unfortunate situation, but it's not one that's unique for a lot of Aboriginal people, particularly around my age or older, but it does still continue today. And so, you know, I've had to look at my, you know, how that created who I am today, you know, how that made me the person that I am today. And without that, would I be the person that I am today? And I'm not saying that anybody should suffer violence. I'm just saying that all our experiences make up who we are as a person. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a long-term relationship that had elements of violence, which I'm not going to talk too much about because my daughter's here today. And so i mm. um, unfortunately working from home, but it took me a long time after that relationship ended to realize that that's what it had been. So I, and I'd worked in DB for a long, long time and I was raised and I still didn't realize till a long time after that. And a lot of, a bit of therapy, a lot of talking to my friends and a lot of uh, soul searching to realize that, uh, yeah, that's where I had been.
3: Yeah. A really interesting point. There's so much I want to cover already just in your, in your, you know, hearing your background, but We've heard this across the other interviews that I was mentioning to you is that when you're in it, like you're saying, you, you're almost like a, I don't know if, you're, um, if the label's okay, but it's, you're an expert at <laughs> Do you know, you know this territory and you've seen it endlessly, and yet it took, a long time to actually recognise that that's what was going on. And that's, we've heard that in multiple stories um, that, that's happening. It's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Have you got any understanding of why, why that's so? The dots can only ever be connected backwards on that sort of thing? I think because it's not
4: something that starts as a major, you know, a major event. So when we have trauma often, you know, a death or some major trauma, it's a big event and it's smash, mm. you know, it hit, you know, a car accident for an analogy, you know, it hits us. It's something you can't deny. That was mm. a car accident. That's a trauma. With domestic violence, I think it starts so slowly, you know, it's weaved in. You're sort of caught off guard. Did that really happen? Did I hear that right? Did he slam his hand on the door? You know, like you start to question yourself and you're not so sure. And it's not like it's all of a sudden. And I think from my experience of talking to women, you know, and I'm not just going to say, I know a lot of people will say, oh, there's other, you know, there's men, there's violence, women against men, men against men. I understand that. My perspective is as a woman. So that's how I speak. So, you know, that's I'm just explaining that for people to say that's how I speak. I'm not disregarding any other types of violence. So what I'm saying, yeah, it doesn't start as a major trauma where you can go, oh, that's the point that it started. And because it starts so slowly and and you start your doubting, did that happen? Did that really happen? You know, Was that? And I think sometimes the perpetrators, and I'm not trying to say this to downplay their part, but sometimes they don't even know that that's what they're doing. They don't even know that, particularly in control behaviors, they don't even know They know that it works, that they continue to do it, but they don't actually have any insight into the fact that they're doing it. So for me, that's when I try to explain it to people, that's what I say. It never starts as you being, you know, the, the physical violence. Very often when you talk to women, the physical violence is like way down the track. And, you know, from my own mother's perspective, she was married very young she was married at 16, had her first child at 16. But she says that my, like the physical violence never started till my oldest brother was nearly six months old or around six months of age. So, you know, she'd already been with this man for over 12 months, married to him. And so back in her days, particularly, that she didn't feel that she had any way out of that. So it didn't, that's what I'm saying, it doesn't start as a major trauma, which is the only way I can explain as to why mm you don't, and you doubt yourself, you doubt, you know, because, you know, we know about the cycle of violence. So you come back to the honeymoon phase and you think, oh, this is okay. You know, you know, he's apologetic. There's, you know, conversations about it. You know, in my perspective, I was, it was a second relationship. I was, you know, do I want to do this again? Do I want to, you know, that whole stigma, which I'm now so over that I don't, you know, don't care, but Back then I was a bit different and I was like, oh, second relationship breakdown. Do I really want to do that? I have a child. You know, how how does that look? What is, you know, and I was a bit more worried about that then too. Yeah, so it just, that's all I can say. It's just not something that hits you slam. And I, and it might be for some people. Some people might be really different experience, but my experience talking to women in the court advocacy service rooms and other women just in general, yeah, it never starts as a major trauma, so you don't recognise it and you don't trust yourself either sometimes. You know, having grown up in violence, you know, some people have said to me before, oh, you see violence everywhere in every relationship, Melissa. So you question yourself. You go, oh, maybe I am too oversensitive. Maybe I am oversensitive about stuff. Maybe this is normal behaviours. And if you've never had a relationship that is not doesn't have violence in it, then you sometimes don't know where that sits or where that line is or is this appropriate behavior or isn't it can take a long time for us to realize what that means, what a healthy relationship looks like.
3: Mm. The statistics that we hear and and thank you for clarifying before that yeah we're talking this is your perspective, this is your truth, this is your view of the world. And so that's that's where we're going to talk. And as we start talking about Indigenous communities and Aboriginal women and that sort of thing, we're, we're talking from your perspective. We know that experiences Absolutely. vary enormously across the country. From And I want to clarify
4: that too and just say yeah. this is Melissa Stubbings talking. Yeah. Uh, and if some other Aboriginal woman gives you a wholly different, whole different perspective, please yeah. don't say, oh, but Melissa Stubbings said. <laughs> like, don't tell them Melissa Stubbings said because yeah. I tell you that's the worst thing you could do. You need to take all this information and somehow it's like when I do cultural awareness training, that's what I tell people. You're going to get a whole range of perspectives. And unfortunately, it's not black and white. You know, our culture is not always black and white. How I see it is different how somebody up in Mount Isa might see it or in Broome might see it or even just down in Wollongong from me might see it. You know, it's Mm. not the same. So unfortunately, cultural awareness is about that. It's about awareness. It's about understanding. It's about building your own understanding of how that looks and being, you know, open to hearing different stories and putting it into perspective.
3: Yeah, and it is very much that openness, isn't it? Because as we sort of, we in our previous discussions are talking about that too often these issues, particularly when it comes to Aboriginal women's health and well-being and and you know, entire um, all of our different indigenous communities they they tend to we tend to think of them as a, a one mass oh yeah a homogenous mass rather than all these incredible nations and you know we've got Europe you know that's been here for 60,000 years type diversity you know it's it's that level people can often relate to the fact that putting a german and a russian in the room together and thinking you're going to get the same answer is not going to happen but yet yeah, we try and do that with our uh, indigenous communities and it just doesn't work that way they, they're they just as diverse as any other kind of, uh, you know, absolutely absolutely so, yeah.
4: there are similarities, definitely yeah. there are similarities and there are some things that we've all you know as a collective suffered since colonization mm-hmm. such as oppression racism so there are similarities in that there are you know but you know it's particularly also with our Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters like very different like mm. so different, yet we're often all put together and they try and give responses around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. However, we're so different, you know, in the way that happens. And and this is sometimes gets people really um, confused, I think they get really confused by that because we've had this term Aboriginal. So when I introduced myself, I said that I was a Buraboronga Mamali woman of the Darek Nation. So what a lot of our communities are trying to do now is actually relate to where we're from mm-hmm. and not as Aboriginal people because we're trying to get people more to understand that that is who I am as a person. And Darig is my nation and language group, but the, my clan is different again. Thank you. So, so that's what a lot of people are trying to do. You might hear mm. more of that as, yeah,
3: as uh, time goes on. Mm, fantastic. Thank you for helping me learn that. That's another fine distinction. It's all the little distinctions that you make over time, doesn't it, that, that start to add up to, to good understanding. Can we talk a bit about statistics? Let's start at the numbers and then work to the humanity that sits behind those numbers. We do see an overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in, in incarceration in, in our justice system. See some incredibly poor statistics around the well-being of um, Aboriginal women within those communities, particularly in relation to violence, why are the statistics so bad? That is a big question, I know, but let's just pull that thread and help help, um, yeah, help yeah, me understand why, why that exists beyond the stereotypes, I think, that we hear. So just share some wisdom and we'll just probe into it and see what happens.
4: I think the biggest thing for me is that, it's that lack of understanding. It's that lack of understanding the difference in cultures from colonisation. If we go back to the very beginning, there were two communities that came together, and I'm going to talk general now. So, when I say Aboriginal communities, I'm going to talk very general. So, we've got Aboriginal communities, and we've got an Anglo English community coming here with mm-hmm. completely different understandings of what life is, completely different family structures, work structures foods that we eat, interactions as a community, completely different. And from that moment, that clash of those two cultures and the inability for, let's say, both sides, I'll be generous, both sides to really fully understand the other, mainly because of a language barrier. That was the biggest thing. And because within languages, there are words that we would have had that didn't translate to English and English would have had that didn't translate to us because they weren't so different, you know. So that big clash there and colonisation itself, you know, the taking over of land, the dispossession, all of that is just, none of it's been ever unpacked back to the truth of that. So it's all just been layered upon with, you know, histories written by the victors, as they say. So the history mm-hmm. was written, you know, things like we didn't defend our land, we didn't work. You know, I remember a quote, and I was only talking about this the other day with somebody else, but I think it was in around 2000, there was a quote, and I can't remember the politician, but they said they didn't even have the wheel. You know why we didn't have a wheel? Because we didn't need a wheel. If we'd have needed a wheel, we would have had a wheel. We would have invented one of (laughs) them. That's right. Like, this is the lack of understanding that our communities, as they were, and they were intricate. Don't ever think that because they might have appeared to English people that they were simple they were complex mm. really complex communities they just didn't recognize it because we didn't have buildings we didn't have churches set up as a with a cross on the top and a building and I'm not being disrespectful I'm just saying those mm. things didn't exist we didn't have roads we didn't have the wheel because they didn't recognize it layers upon layers over generations have come that we have not been as I don't know, the, word, I don't, the words I want to use are we weren't seen as being intelligent or as yeah. having yeah. a worth or value yeah. because they didn't recognise it as the model that they knew from England. Mm, so mm. I think over years, that's all I can say is that over years that it's been that pushing down, that not recognising that intricacies of our communities, not recognising the way that we parent. One of my great friends, Sigrid Herring, always says, if the one thing they had kept when they dismantled our communities towards the way that we parented or raised our children as a community, there'd be no need for docs today or welfare systems or child Mm -hmm. protection because we raised children as a village, as a community. You know, I think it's a great statement. I think it's very true, but it wasn't recognized and it still isn't today. The way children are raised and raised within a community or a family isn't recognized by the welfare or child protection systems. And that's why a lot of, we have 50% of the kids that are in out-of-home care today are Aboriginal kids because the way our kids are raised is not recognised. And I'm not saying, I'm going to clarify this all the way through, <laughs> I'm not saying that some children don't need to be placed in care. I'm not saying that at all because within every culture, there are some children that need to be placed in care regardless. So, but I, there doesn't need to be that high percentage. We're 2.5% of the population and yet the kids that are in care 50 percent Aboriginal kids Mm. roughly at any given time in most states that's in most states across because child protection is a state issue so that's in most states across the country so that's all I can say as to why it is why the stats are where they are today because we've had that inability to truly understand our culture from the very beginning the very beginning and, and and the truth telling of how Aboriginal people have been treated in this country has never fully come to the front. And we're not talking about that. We're not talking about dispossession. We're not talking about massacres. We're not talking about slavery. We're not talking about stolen generations, stolen wages. You know, all those things a lot of people don't know about. And until that happens, those statistics aren't going to shift because the mindset of a lot of people are that Aboriginal people are just lazy, don't want to work, alcoholics, drug addicts, violent human beings if and Mm. I still believe there are some people who think sometimes as they used to that we're not human beings you know so it was only you know it was only up until we were you know counted in the 1967 referendum as people Mm. yeah so that's what I can say about statistics it's because we are always in the areas of negative you know we're always in the areas of You know, we're overrepresented is what I'm trying to say, overrepresented in all the key areas. And I think until the truth starts to come out and people start it as truth and accept that that's what happened and start to have some kindness and compassion for Aboriginal people and where they are today and why that's happened, why we don't have the same opportunities. I was only talking, as I said, I was talking to my friend last night and it's my generation within my family group and his is very much similar that are homeowners in my family generally my generation of homeowners my brothers my cousins our parents weren't homeowners our grandparents weren't homeowners now if you track any other mainly culture that's been here for a few generations I bet their parents and grandparents were homeowners so the starting platform is very different or you find within my generation, the first people to go to university and you look at a lot of other, you know, successful areas and you'll find that their parents, grandparents might have went to university or had, you know, what you might call a good job, you know, those mm-hmm. types of jobs. So those opportunities are not been the same for us, you know, in the 60s, um, I can't remember the date, so don't quote me on it, but in the 60s, I think roughly. Aboriginal women weren't allowed to collect the child endowment that other people were allowed to collect. So how do you feed your children, clothe your children, send them to school, do all those things that everybody else expects should happen for children if you're not getting the same income that other people are getting? Then you can't get employment and you can' you can't get employment unless you get an exemption sometimes.
3: Really so your expectation, back, yeah.
4: So the expectation, sorry, the expectation is that you, provide for your child the same as let's just say the family next door. So the family next door get child endowment. The parent, the father works. That's I'm talking about. The sixties, you know, yeah. parent works. They're buying their home. They've got family support because they're still connected to their family. And then you have an Aboriginal family that can't get child endowment. They can't get a job. They might be living. Or that might be the mission next door or they might be living in rented homes. They don't have the family around because they've all been moved around because that's what happened. There was a lot of movement. This, You know, you got shifted around from your community often. So you don't have that support. How do you have the same level for your kids that the family next door to you have? Mm. It's, it's just not—it's not feasible, but it was expected. And then your child would be removed because you couldn't afford to send them to school. You couldn't afford food, clothing because you didn't. And, you know, up until 1973, it was at the discretion of a principal as to whether an Aboriginal child could attend a school. That was the year I started school. 1970, the discretion of a principal as to whether an Aboriginal child. So there again, how do you get educated? So that's why my generation are the first or, you know, even a few older than me, but to really actually be educated because we weren't actually allowed to attend school. People don't know that. They think that we weren't, we just didn't go to school but it actually wasn't allowed in some communities for us to go to school.
3: And nor is it an educational platform. Our schools were not cognizant of those things that you mentioned earlier, those cultural differences of how how, how um, you know, Aboriginal families taught, and how they how they taught each other, how the community taught and, and nurtured their children is very different to sit in a school, look at a whiteboard and and take it in. So Back then, and even, I don't know, you'd be far better across this than me, I wonder if even our education system now really accommodates, which could be an actually a much better learning model.
4: (laughs) Oh, for sure. I have a learning model in my head that I think would work. I have a learning model that will work in any school. And I have a son, my son, ADHD. And Mm -hmm. I remember when he was at school, and I'm talking 20 years ago, a bit more, dating myself again. But um, he had a lot of problems at school and I said to his teacher one day, why don't you take the class outside and sit under a tree? Just let him sit in the lower branches, like not too high because he loves sitting. I said, you will see a different child if he's outside touching nature. And I said, you know, he will, she said, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. And I said, why? Why can't you have a class outside and just see if it works? She refused to do it, refused to even try to accommodate what I knew would work for him because I've seen, I would see my son sit and watch. He would sit on the ground and just watch people work. Mm-hmm. Once he was outside, he was just different person and would engage. And yeah, they just, and I said, you know, and cause he was a bit wild. And I said, you know, in our culture, he would be a warrior cause he's a leader that other boys look up to and he's brave and he's spirited and it just doesn't conform to your little round hole. He's a square peg in a round hole. And your classroom sitting in behind a desk and constricting him doesn't, it's not going to help. So while he had to learn to navigate that, because that was what was available, there was no accommodation of even one lesson a week that might help him learn in a different way. I'm mm-hmm. talking 20 years ago, like I'll acknowledge that. I still think we have some way to go around that, around mm-hmm. What? How different children learn, you
3: know. Mm, mm. As I was saying, really embracing the the value that we can we can learn and build from our our you know our inheritance, our cultural inheritance that everyone that lives in Australia has, which is our our know, First Nations and and uh, the way things were done because they they worked and they they were tested over a very long period of time, <laughs>
4: very long period of time. And that's the other thing I want to touch on. You know, I talk about truth-telling around yeah. a lot of the stuff. I, I'll admit that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, you know, it's incarceration rates, it's health statistics, it's mm-hmm. education statistics, it's, you know, low socioeconomic. It's, it's all those stuff, you know, docs, you know, child protection. It's, it's What I want people to start thinking about is in Australia, you are all privileged to have the oldest living culture on your doorstep. You live here for your choice, whether it's because you came here recently or your families came here on the first plate. You came here, if you're not from here, First Nations people originally, you came here for a reason. And right here, right now is the oldest living culture that you could immerse yourself in and get to know and learn about. So why isn't that celebrated? Why isn't every Mm. Australian jumping up and down going, yes, look at us whether we have the oldest living culture, why are we not going, this is great, this is amazing. But when you sometimes talk in a, you know, in a group that's not a friendly group or not a group of like-minded people, you'd mention Aboriginal people and you get the negative. Mm. You never get the celebration. You never get the, yeah, isn't it great? Isn't that, you know, look at what they can show us. And you do mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, that gets paraded out, you know, in tourism times and stuff like that, but it should be really celebrated. Here it is right here. You, you have it. You, every person has access to the oldest living culture in the world. And why are we not excited about that? Why are we not passionate to learn? Why are we not, you know, trying to, even if we have to learn all that stuff that went on, yes, because it did go on still, we could celebrate, we could celebrate together. And I think for a lot of my brothers and sisters, that is exactly what they want. Mm. I just want you to understand that our culture is still standing because we are resilient and we will survive. So celebrate with us. Learn about us. Learn
3: about our culture. Mm. Be proud. Yeah. And I think we all have a. It's been an interesting journey. Again, I'm just going to talk from personal perspective, and it's because I mean I went. I was born 1971. School 70s, 80s. I remember the day that three Aboriginal people turned up at our high school, and I I swear, middle-class Newcastle, the place went silent. A whole high school as these people walked in. They were very dark, and I was just like, "Whoa, I've never seen one of those before." You know, we had Italians, we had everything running around our school. <laughs> but there was that, and I know, I love the fact that I couldn't talk with, um. You know, so my stepdaughter's 13 and she cannot comprehend what I'm talking about. You know, She's like, what, huh? When it comes to a lot of the stuff that was really shocking for us. And so, you know, it has been a lot of unlearning stuff that we were taught at those, in those decades that was wrong. It was just straight out wrong, you know. Science has disproved a lot of stuff about the human body that we now accept as wrong. So why can't we accept that these cultural standards that were set back then were, were wrong? You know, they're poorly informed. They did the best they could. <laughs> they're they a bit off, you know, and it's um, in terms of the denial of the history that it have happened.
4: Yeah, but, yeah. I yeah. think for some people, only from my experience of, you know, both my long-term partners, uh, non-Aboriginal men, Mm. And I think for them, in conversations with them, they took it to heart. Mm. They took it to heart that, you know, or felt blamed. And it's like, it's Mm. not about that. It's Mm. not about you saying that wrong means that it was, that you're to blame personally. It's just saying that this was wrong, what happened. And again, like you said, they didn't know at the time, you know, but if we don't want history to repeat, then we have to look at what happened Mm. and we have Mm. to make changes to that, Mm. to that history. And what I want to say to you around, you know, in Newcastle when you were a kid and you had those Aboriginal people turn up, they were very clearly stereotypically Aboriginal people, but you probably had Aboriginal people in your school that
3: you didn't know. Didn't so really? when you look at it. me. No, no, exactly. did not understand this back then because we weren't. Yeah, sorry, you talk. <laughs> exactly. No, you. no, no,
4: no, it's fine, you know, because when you look at me and people, you know, if you look at me, the, yeah, obviously some people might at first glance, go, oh, you know, she's fair skinned, she's got blue eyes, she's, you know, blonde hair. You're not stereotypically Aboriginal, but mm. you know, our features don't define us. Our culture defines us, our family defines us. Mm. So mm. when people say that, oh, you know, Aboriginal people didn't live here. And I live in an area, you know, I'm in the Hawkesbury, Richmond, New South Wales, and you know, it's very steeped in its colonial history and but there has been Aboriginal people living here forever, but they Mm -hmm. just don't understand it because they don't see the dark skin. They don't, so they don't get it. And that's another, you know, it's been a hard fight because there are still people who will look at, you know, or say to some kids, I still hear kids saying, you know, or teachers even, I've even heard teachers recently and I'm, you know, say part Aboriginal, the kids are part Aboriginal. And we work so hard to get rid of that whole part, half, quarter, all those terminologies. Now we just have Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal. That's how it is. You either are or you aren't. And that's it. None of those other terms matter. And I I recently had somebody I've only known for a couple of years, but he stood there and wanted to argue with me that, you know, because he wanted to know what percentage I was. And I refused. I said, that doesn't exist. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's how you counted. And I said, no, it's not. And he really got quite upset with me because I wouldn't tell him. And, for one to me it doesn't exist that whole concept doesn't exist when I do cultural awareness I often do this little thing it's a little bit cheeky I suppose but so my great-grandparents were both so they had one aboriginal parent one non-aboriginal parent so in the old the way they used to term it they would both be half-caste right mm-hmm. and I was poor at math so you can tell me I'm wrong but when you get two halves and put them together you get a whole right so they're two halves they become one like you know to me their whole idea just doesn't make sense you know and I'm not math was my poorest subject but you know I do that cheekily to try and show people that you just can't do these whole because you've got you know different uh, it's not about that it's not about whether you're a half quarter eight 16th there used to even be this thing up until uh, probably 10 years ago, where they say, oh, once you got to a 16th, you didn't exist anymore as an Aboriginal person. It's like, oh, take all that out of the equation now. It's gone. It's gone. We don't yeah. talk in those terms anymore. And so if that's one thing, I'm pretty sure most Aboriginal people would agree with. I still, unfortunately, in the work that I do, because I get to travel around a bit around the state, I still do sometimes hear some Aboriginal people still using those terms. And it's only because it was told to them so, you know, just be wary of that, but you may come across and you'll think, oh, what's that all about? It's just because it's their journey. It's their part. They haven't come to that understanding yet. They've been taught that, you know, a long time ago, about 20 years ago, I was in Alice Springs and I went to Telegraph Point and I this old fellow was giving us a guided tour. Oh, and he'd been an Aboriginal child there at the when it was a, a mission, the school for the kids that were removed. And he was talking about how Somebody said to him, why were you removed? And he said, because my mother was a savage. And my heart broke and people in that audience clapped. They clapped him for saying that his mother was a savage. Now, that poor old man was just taught that. He Mm. didn't know that. He was taken father as a baby. So he was taught that. So what I'm saying is that if you come across Aboriginal people who are still using the term part or quarter or whatever, it's just because they haven't had any exposure to anything different. They've been taught that. So just be gentle with them and just if you can with yourself, just remember that we don't use those terms anymore.
3: Mm, thank you. What we might do is take a little bit of a break there. We're going to do this as a two-part series. Um, what I want to do is come back and let's start working on some more myths. Thank you for that, that particular one. Um, you know, I've heard that sort of comment made before about the part, and oh, you've got to be at least 5% or some crazy number in order to identify as Aboriginal, which is bizarre. I don't know how you, you do the DNA on that one, but I know. How do you work it out? I heard that I was thinking about it. And then, and you know, in the subsequent weeks, like, you know, these things all stick in my head for a while. And, and uh, I heard, you know, like a Caucasian Australian, because I cooking sensationally were connecting back to their French heritage that was so fine. <laughs> it was a gossamer strand of DNA in there somewhere, but that was making them cook and they were having this incredible connection, which is beautiful, connection to their, their heritage. Yet if somebody does that and, and lives that strong sense of identity through that, 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 through that inheritance, and they happen to be Aboriginal, then we take it on at a very different level. We take it in a different type. We'll, I do it with my Italian heritage. I'm like this much Italian, this much Irish. You know, I'm a bit of a bit of <laughs> bloodlines going yeah. everywhere. But, yeah. um, you know, of course, I can cook amazing because my Italian heritage, right, and my, my energy and everything. is all because my this tiny, little bit of Italian heritage, I relate to it more than my British heritage. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. How do you define somebody's identity in percentages? I don't think you can
4: and should we be defining somebody else's identity or should that always be the person's choice to I, define who they are through their connections and their family and their their beliefs and their you know the way they were raised and their understanding of who they are you know that's that's the most important thing you know my mum my mum was english she's gone to the dreaming now as my dad has And people have said to me, oh, but, you know, so you're English. And I go, well, I've never been to England. I don't have a connection to England in that same way. Yes, I have some traditions because my mother, her mother, my auntie imparted those traditions to us and she taught me those things. And even sometimes some of the words I say, people will say to me, you know, because my mum taught me to speak and she had an English accent. So sometimes there are some words that come out of me a little bit English, but I don't have that connection. I don't have that heart to it. This is where I have that heart to it. And my father, you know, he, he didn't raise us going, that's your Aboriginal culture. He just taught us. And years later, when you start talking to other Aboriginal people, you go, oh, okay, that's because that's our culture. That's because, you know, back in when I was a kid, it wasn't, now we do teach it more about, you know, well, this is your, but our parents, because they weren't actually allowed to sometimes teach us as well, that's another thing, they weren't allowed to share our language. Weren't allowed to do those things. They just taught us, but didn't point out that that's our culture. They just taught us ways of living. You know, like I said to you, I had two Aborigin- Aboriginal, non Aboriginal men, my partners. Now, in our house, you shared everything and you never took the last of anything. But those men would just go to the, just eat everything. They'd eat the last biscuit. They'd eat the last everything. They didn't have this idea of sharing. Mm. And a real, that little thing just drove home to me. It's like, oh, I get it now. Like they, you know, our culture was taught to us in a different way. And my mum was actually very embraced by my Aboriginal community. And when she passed away, uh, like it was a big funeral and a lot of Aboriginal people attended because she didn't have her family here and my dad's family and culture was here. And so she actually took that on. And, you know, our house was one of those houses everybody went to, called in for, got a feed at, you know, these are the things that are also very cultural to us as well. Nobody goes hungry. Nobody should live homeless and stuff like that. So, you know, um, I don't have that connection. My mum was English and she was connected, but I don't feel it. Maybe if I go there one day, I might feel it, but, you know, I don't feel it.
3: I feel it here. I, know, I feel it. I know it here. Beautiful. Fantastic. Well, we might just take a little break there and then we'll come back and talk about myths.
0: If you or someone close to you is experiencing family violence, please talk to someone. You can call 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to talk to a professional service or if there is an immediate threat to your safety, call the police on 000. What a fascinating discussion, Jess. And what I mean by that is that this subject just keeps on giving us different angles. And kind of that's what I really took from this is that we've heard lots of different examples of how family violence uh, or domestic violence impacts everyone but to hear how it's impacting indigenous communities is just another angle to this uh, this topic it's fascinating
2: and I think what stood out for me Demo was that it, it just makes you realize how much you can underestimate the complexity of something like this and I couldn't shake the you know early in the interview Melissa talking about the fact that domestic violence isn't like when someone dies or someone's in an accident, there's not that sort of immediate impact that you, know, you can kind of realize and hold on to. It's, it's this gradual buildup over time, often very slow. And, you know, it explains a lot of why people find themselves in this situation and are able to rationalize away some of the horrific violence that they're, mm. that they're experiencing. And, and we look at it and say, but this is so obvious. Why don't Why don't you leave the relationship or leave the environment that you're in? And it, it goes so much more deeper than that. And you know that was that was a really interesting insight into a another thing that I think just can be easily underestimated and 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 and, and reasoned away.
0: Very much so, Jez. Very much so. An interesting insight. Okay, up next we've got another Q and A, and this time we're covering worst moments. And following that, we get a wrap up from. David Attrell, his latest update.
3: Hi, I'm Lee. I'm one of the co-founders of Run Against Violence. One of the questions I get asked most frequently is, was there a point in my run from Broken Hill to Sydney that I thought I couldn't make it, where I actually felt like giving up? The truth of the matter is, no, I didn't. At no stage did I entertain the idea that I wouldn't get there. I knew I could do it from the moment that I towed that that start line and I stood there at Broken Hill and had 1,300 kilometres of running ahead of me. I knew I could do it. I didn't necessarily know how we were going to get it done. Every step I took, every kilometre that we bagged was done one at a time. We weren't too worried about what was going to happen in a thousand kilometres time because if I tripped over, if I didn't eat at the right time, if we got lost, (laughs) I'm not making any comments about my crew there, but Sydney navigation, a little bit challenging. (laughs) Anything, anything could have happened, so we only ever focus on taking one step at a time. But I never had a point at which I thought I couldn't do it. So perhaps the better question to ask is what was the most difficult point? What part of the 1,300 kilometres presented the biggest challenge? There are a couple of points that spring to mind with that question. One of those moments was just outside of Bogan Gate. I'd had multiple physios on the phone helping me through pain. I had incredible pain happening on the front of my legs We'd been applying ice and bandages and all sorts of things to try and get me running again. It was too painful to run. There was nerves and all sorts of twangs shooting up through the front of my legs up into my hips. I was sitting in the back of the car and we took another phone call from one of the physios that was helping. We'd been through all the options and the physio said, you're just going to have to face... That this is as good as the pain management is going to get. this is what you're going to have to live with for the next seven hundred kilometers. I thought, damn, I'm tough, I'm going to work my way through this. Got out of the car after having my legs strapped again and started running, and the pain was excruciating. I made it across the road a few meters down the road, and then I just sat down in the gutter and bawled my eyes out. but you know, a few minutes later, the fear and everything else had moved on and I got up and I walk-jogged my way into Bogan Gate. The second moment that's in contention for the worst moment is in the documentary. It was when we were crossing the Blue Mountains. We are crossing it using the six-foot track, which if you're familiar with it, you'll know it's an incredibly steep track. And given the amount of pain that was in my legs, we'd reached the thousand kilometer point by this stage. It was too painful to actually go down the hill frontwards. So I had to turn around and reverse down the hill. And I could walk only meters before my legs would collapse with the pain, and my crew would have to massage my legs and get me moving again. It was a very, very long night, but we got it done.
1: RAV 2021, towards the end, and time for my update too, after ten days and more have shot past. Some people, well, most people, don't understand that my passion is for ultra-distance racing, and I can spend six days glued to the computer, checking lap times in Europe for people I've never met, but feel part of my life. And that is my feeling at the present. Never bored, but with a very sore upload finger. So what has happened in the ten days would take a month to work out and longer to tell. I have to guess what's happening dependent upon the computer working, 4,000 people taking exercise and then perhaps getting the data to run the world site. Thanks again, Travis. Hopefully there won't be typos. There have been a few. And occasionally I got carried away and might have preempted a finish, not so much fuzzy logic, as wobbly data. The real stories are in real life, in the team posters and Facebook page and team chats and in questions hoping for answers. The increase in concrete disasters as concrete problems, such as for Rob Lloyd and his knee, and Ruth Gasper's shattered dreams of silver finish. Finish what you started having an identity problem as to what their name was last year, and don't step too close to me, apparently, and The strange metamorphosis of last year's team, Are We There Yet? to Are They There Yet? as they were late reserving the name. Well done this year's Are We There Yet? team's captain for being quick off the mark. So, statistics. Am I there yet? Well, first, as I say, probably not often enough, the leaderboard is raw data and until ratified can be wrong. So just don't take it as gospel and great to see all the soul groups this year! I think that was a joke. Where are the statistics? I hear one or two of you cry. Well, first, make sure you look at the poll from September the 3rd, essentially listing what anybody felt were the values of RAV other than the virtual race. The preferred response was all of the above. There are so many great things about RAV, including what was essentially 72 votes for an opportunity for those with DVF to feel part of a supportive community. Closely followed by RAV is a great way to celebrate community and also 19-day opportunity to stretch the self mentally and physically. There are no team prizes, but it's fun to see what my team and other teams can achieve working together. An opportunity to support great community causes and that sharing our daily targets or achievements is about raising awareness that is not okay. These plus the other points, including meeting new people and coming together as a team with a mutual goal, just about covers it. So the numbers are not the be-all and end-all, that would be a good team's name, of Rav, but quite the opposite. Now, how have the numbers changed since day four until roughly day 15 when I'm writing this? He wrote this? Yes, he did. So things have changed and yet they haven't. Rousty about had just entered late on day three, I think, and they made Luna Park a few days ago. However, there have been pretty consistent progress as a group over the period. I would predict that perhaps 210 teams might make Luna Park if all goes well, and I could have predicted that a long time ago. As I said, the numbers don't tell the whole story. Typos, tiredness, foam black spots, and sometimes Travis and the team captains have to sort things out. All hail Travis, for those who don't know, he is run the world. Sorry, I digress again. So, what has changed? Individual and team long runs, including BMMC's successful 24-hour challenge of completing 1,300 kilometres in, surprisingly, slightly less than 24 hours. We had Rob Lloyd's 26 hours to attain 200 kilometres, probably unique. And we had Tracy DePass and her hubbies joined around Port Stevens area, I believe with 109.79 each. Yay! Sometimes little happened, and then we had what well, I would term parkrun and Saturday fever, when the weekends had amazing flurries and position changes that made my life difficult but fun. I could have taken any hour and presented a thesis based in snapshots such as dead ringers and Central Coast running mums being one kilometre apart after 14 days, and that when following the line that is the daily average to be on target for Luna Park day 19, it has slowly risen in number of teams likely to finish. Great! And day 13, between a rock and a hard pace, were almost exactly that distance. Like LRC Chilton and LRC Brannigan coming very close at one point. And at the time of writing... BMMC4 Hobbsy's Hobblers are 160 metres away from finishing and have been there for a couple of hours. Now what is it with wobblers and hobblers standing around just outside the park? Anyway, time for a potted summary as at day 15. Day 15, Midnight. This was the first day where the movable target hit 1,000 kilometres, 1026.32 kilometres to be exact. And again, 204 teams are above that, with 213 past 30 kilometres below, which is just an extra 8 kilometres a day to find from somewhere. 148 teams have logged 1,300 kilometres already and have passed by Luna Park. The pacemakers in the top 30 are Friends of the Swiss Mountain Goat, who is still 7th overall. Watch this space. Soul Sisters Terrigal, BMMC2, and Orange Icebreakers. Great going, everyone! So far, no team is past 4,000 kilometres, <laughs> but boat crew two are very close. Finish What You Started are over 3,500. RAV 106 are over 3,400. Holistic Walkers are over 3,000 kilometres. And Dead Ringers and Central Coast Running Mums are over 2,900. We have 11 in total over 2,500. And 39 over 2,000. Pretty stupendous. We have nine teams past Broken Hill. Yay! so that is the state of play with four days to go make sure those kilometres get logged you might miss out by one kilometre there's several teams only one kilometre apart at times and that's all from me enjoy the next four days and tune in to the rap podcast sometime after the nineteen days are finished bye
2: Next up, we have Rachel Stanley back again with us from Run 180 to cover the next topic in the running series. And today she's going to be covering the topic of breathing.
0: Something that's important to all of us, Jez.
2: certainly is, (laughs) especially when you're running.
5: Hey, everyone. Rachel, Run 180, supporting you in this RAV challenge. So a key question I get asked everyone is how do I breathe when I'm running? Now, for a lot of you runners already out there, maybe that's not a question and you're quite comfortable. But what I'm gonna do everyone is suggest to you that once you've got on the step rate, once you've got your step rate right, what you're going to want to do is then try and time your breath with your step rate. So what that is, is, you know, you run 180, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, that's your step rate. And then what you're going to be able to do is step, and breathe at the same time. So it's in two, three, four, out two, three, four, in two, three, four, out two, three, four. So you're timing your breath with your footfall. Okay, so if fours are too hard, maybe try threes. If you're going really slowly, you might even be able to do fives. And ideally, everyone, if you're really getting a bit specific, what you're gonna do, please, breathing in for three, breathing out for four, or breathing in for four, breathing out for five. When you can start to get your out breath ever so slightly longer than your in breath, it's going to help with your efficiency. Now, what I'm gonna do potentially is blow your mind a bit because when you're you're running, I need you to breathe through your nose. Now, you're not gonna like me at first, everyone. No, Rachel, I don't wanna breathe through my nose. It's really difficult. That's because you're maybe not used to nose breathing. A lot of us breathe through our mouth. I could go into all the detail around it, But what you need for running everyone is you need oxygen to your cells and if i tell you that breathing through your nose which will then make you strengthen your diaphragm it will make certain gases increase in your body it will make certain um, changes within your cardiovascular system gases i mean nitric oxide that's produced in the sinuses which basically helps with how the blood vessels operate which help uh, the, the hemoglobin pick up the oxygen better so I could go into all of the science for you. Please come to me on Facebook, ask me any questions. I'd love to talk to you about it. But if you can start getting into the habit, at least breathing in through the nose, even if you're breathing out through the mouth, breathing in through the nose, preferably in and out through the nose. Second best is in through the nose, out through the mouth. Third best is no good. It's all energy's gone out the window. You're not efficient. You're not getting that oxygen to your cells. Okay, cool. So it's nose breathing and timing it with your footfall. I hope that helps.